This is John with Teresa, and we're reading from The Right of Sodomy, Homosexuality, and the Roman Catholic Church, Volume 4, pages 782 to 785. And this is uh, DOLW2, Diocese of Lansing, Watch 2. And podcast, one. podcast 21. No, podcast 1. Podcast 1. That's good. Excuse me. Can we stop this? And so we'll have re, um, Teresa read from the book first. Okay, and we're starting on page... 782 to 785. 785, and we're starting under the um, title of What's Wrong With This Picture? And you start right there. Okay. Lynch was appointed to Bishop of the Diocese of St. Petersburg on December 5th, 1995. Apparently, Simmons did not tell Lynch about the sex abuse settlement when he took over the diocese. Bishop John Richard did not take over the Diocese of Pensacola, Tallahassee from Bishop John Smith, who had in the meantime been appointed co-jutor Bishop of Trenton until January 1997. Smith, a protege of Cardinal Theodore McCarrick, apparently forgot to tell Ricard about the Simmons settlement. When the Decker story broke, Bishop Lynch immediately announced that he was appointing a retired judge to look into how the 1995 complaint was handled in order to restore some credibility to the diocese and presumably himself. Lynch said that he himself had learned of the meeting between Simmons and his victim just days before Simmons resigned. This meant that he knew about the settlement with Simmons victims prior to the June 2nd press conference. Why hadn't he revealed the truth then? I think that's a very important question, John. Okay, well, As John Krogan, Grogan, columnist for the Sun Centennial, quipped, <clears throat> what other little details have church leaders failed to mention? And I think, John, if it's okay if I yeah, add a few on. comments sure. here. You know, you and I were talking about the sins of truth and the, sin, the sins committed against truth and the obligations of priests. Um, I just want everyone to keep in mind that we're talking about the whole truth not coming out and people hiding it and people, as in the hierarchy, um, not telling all the truth. We have to look at friendship um, and the idols of friendship. And just keep that in mind when we're reading. Okay. Lynch, a modernist bishop that the Pope selected, Bishop Lynch as the temporary administrator and spokesman for the beleaguered di Diocese of Palm Beach is not surprising. Lynch is an established establishment figure in the AM Church who made his reputation at the National Conference of the Catholic Bishops, U.S. Catholic Conference, as a man who gets a job done. He served as Associate General Secretary of the NCCB, USCC, from 1984 to 1989, and as General Secretary from 1989 to 1995. His signature document is Communities of Salt and Light. Reflections on the Social Mission of the Parish that was approved by the Catholic bishops at their November 1993 annual meeting. 
A West Virginia boy born and bred, Lynch received the Bachelor of Arts degree from the Pontifical College Josephinium in Worthington, Ohio in May of 1963 and his Master of Divinity degree from Pope John the 23rd National Seminary in Weston, Massachusetts in May of 1978. He was adorned, he was ordained a priest of the Archdiocese of Miami on May 13, 1978, at the age of 37, and served at St. James in North Miami and as a pastor at St. Mark's in Fort Lauderdale. He was named the fourth bishop of St. Petersburg on December 5, 1995. The appointment was no surprise. The post of the General Secretary of the NCCB and the USCC has long been recognized as a springboard for ecclesiastical advancement in the AM Church. Bishop Lentz accelerated the rate of modernization of the Diocese of St. Petersburg. Traditional Catholics report that he radically reduced the practice of exposition of the Blessed Sacrament in local parishes, and he enthusiastically promoted sex instruction in Catholic schools. I want to pause here. Okay. What has happened in our church, John, at Holy Redeemer Parish? Well, our priest. An adoration. Yeah, has locked down the uh, adoration chapel. He won't let people in. You, he won't let you in, and, you know, it's just... And it's a 24-hour perpetual adoration. Yeah. Were, you, were you able to go there before? Yes, I was able, and one time we were in church, and he, I was trying to go in there, and he yelled at me from across the church. Yes, and was that um, during COVID? Yes. And what what happened? Why did he, you know, what was his reason for not letting you go in there? I have no idea. He what didn't give you a reason. No, he, he didn't just give hollered. Me yeah, just hollered. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Um, so sins against um, Jesus, sins um, not allowing parishioners to go into adoration and I was just when we just read this part here traditional Catholics report that he radically reduced the practice of exposition of the blessed sacrament in local parishes why would someone do that why would they take Jesus from the people just for a power play or something I don't know what else it would be okay we'll continue on yeah he permitted the continuance of dignity like masses masses so this is important here. He permitted the continuance of dignity like masses for homosexuals and welcomed New Way's ministry in the, into the diocese. So he was willing to um, bring in the idea of dignity, which, John, you and I have talked about. Dignity is important to all, um, for everyone. Yeah. We, we understand that point. But when you when you disregard Jesus in the Adoration Chapel and and, and stop people from coming to the Adoration Chapel and encourage and encourage um, um, dignity at all costs, but yet you're taking away the Adoration and um, the um, the joy of being and sitting with Jesus. There's something intrinsically wrong about that. Yeah, we're we're agree. we're saying we want the dignity of all people. What about the dignity of people who want to be in the adoration chapel with Jesus? Mm. Okay, we'll go on here. 
In the horrific case of hospitalized Terry, in the horrific case of hospitalized Terry Schindler, Schiavo was adulterous husband, starved her to death. Lynch never, Lynch neither defended the young woman's right to food and water or her right to Holy Communion as a baptized Catholic, one of the young woman's few consolation in the world. I think that's very important, too. Do you? Yes, I think so. What do you think about that? Well, he just, he should have let her have communion, you know, and, and food and water, too, you know, not just starve her to death. Is not uh, priestly. And was that behavior? And was that being treating her with dignity? No, it was not. Okay. Um, so the next section is Bishop Robert Lynch manages his own crises. On March twenty second, two thousand and two, the diocese of Saint Petersburg was hit by more bad news. Bishop Lynch had called an important press conference to deny charges that he had sexually harassed a former head of communications for the diocese. Lynch decided to call the news conference after he heard the Tampa Tribune was just about to break the story. The 60-year-old bishop said the allegations against him were unsubstantiated, which is not to say that they were not true. I have faithfully and fully lived the celibate vow since the day of ordination, Lynch said. He told reporters gathered at the press conference that he had asked his superiors, actually that were, actually they were his subordinates, to review the charges against him because of the intense media scrutiny of the sexual misconduct of Catholic clergy. The sexual misconduct charge against Lynch involved former diocese employee Bill Urbanski, who was 42, who reported to church officials that Lynch had sexually harassed him on numerous occasions. I'm going to stop here. John, do you want to read the next two pages? Okay, sure. Okay. Church officials said they offered Urbanski another job within the diocese, but away from Bishop Lynch in September 2002. But Urbanski turned down the offer. Instead, he was given a $100,000 severance package after he agreed not to file a lawsuit. Actually, the figure is closer to $150,000 if the extended salary payment that qualified Urbanski for vested pension benefits is included. The entire operation was carried out in almost total secrecy. Lynch's three subordinates, loyal subordinates, Diocesan Attorney Joseph DeVito, Vicar General Monsignor Brendan Muldoon, and Chancellor Monsignor Robert Gibbons reviewed, in quotation marks, the complaint against their boss. Only Archbishop John Favalora in Miami was notified of the complaint. Nothing was put in writing. Nevertheless, church officials denied that the payment was hush money. The diocese does not buy silence in St. Petersburg, said attorney DeVito. He explained that the money came from parishioners, bequeaths, investments, and unrestricted accounts. No funds earmarked for the ministry were used, DeVito said. When contacted by the press for a statement, Urbanski said the public revelation had caught him by surprise, and he was not prepared to discuss it at this time. Later, Bishop Lynch admitted 
that he may have crossed the line between friendship and work. He made a vague reference to getting some counseling, in quotation marks. In addition to reporting on the Lynch-Urbanski story, the St. Petersburg Times and the Tampa Tribune were looking into rumors of Bishop Lynch's intimate relationship with bachelor David Herman, a contractor who had moved from Port Lauderdale to St. Petersburg with Lynch when he was installed as bishop. The two men had vacationed together in Hawaii, San Francisco, Key West, Bermuda, Israel, and Rome, sometimes accompanied by Urbanski. Herman had several things in common with Urbanski, one of them being that both men were triathletes. In March 2000, all three men, that is Herman, Urbanski, and Lynch, went to West Palm Beach for a weekend. Urbanski said the bishop pressured him to go. When they got to their hotel, Urbanski said that Lynch made him take a steam bath together. Herman, who joined the two men, said that Urbanski clearly did not want to be there. Urbanski said that when Lynch began to make sexual overtures towards him, he tried to avoid the bishop as much as possible. I tried to avoid him as the years progressed without him getting mad at me. I couldn't have have him mad at me. It was a tough day at work if he was mad at me, yet I couldn't leave. He went as far as to tell how to tell me how to wear my hair. If I got my hair cut, he would say, Oh Bill, you need to grow your hair back. It's not a flattering haircut for you. He said that when he and Bishop Lynch traveled together, the bishop always insisted on sharing always insisted on sharing rooms and sometimes appeared naked from the shower. In April 2002, Urbanski gave a lengthy interview to Brad Smith of the Tampa Tribune in which he elaborated on his four-and-a-half-year relationship with Bishop Lynch. He said that Lynch was a lavish spender who always traveled first class and that he and Urbanski, that he, Urbanski, was frequently the recipient of the bishop's largesse watches, designer clothing, and other expensive items. Urbanski said at first he was grateful until he realized that the gifts came at a price, more time, attention, and ultimately sexual favors for the bishop. It is interesting to note that reporters following the case appeared to be unfazed by the homosexual overtones of the Lynch-Herman relationship or Lynch taking sexual familiarities with Urbanski, a married man with two small children, were baptized by the bishop. They were upset, however, by the accusation that Lynch, as corporation soul of the Diocese of St. Petersburg, had awarded Herman highly inflated new construction contracts totaling $30.3 million on a non-competitive bid basis, even though diocesan regulations mandate open bidding for church construction work. It appears that Bishop Lynch has successfully managed his own sexual misconduct crisis, thanks in no small part to a major distraction provided by the resignation in March 2002 of Bishop Anthony O'Connell of the Diocese of Palm Beach for, you guessed it, sexual molestation. Hmm. So you want to on that? Okay, so that finishes up our reading. Um, and John, 
we uh, we had some comments that we were talking about. Do you want to read from your commentary? Sure. Okay. All right, these are my comments on what we just read. There is nothing more to say after reading about more of the pederasty and corruption committed by priests and bishops in The Rite of Sodomy, Volume 4, by Randy Engel, than what I have already said about them, which is that the Catholic, in quotation mark, institution and hierarchy are very nearly totally corrupt and depraved and beyond reform or rehabilitation and need to be replaced by some people who don't just look upon the priesthood as another job and money-making racket. These sorts of people who are currently in positions of authority in the church and have been, for the most part, rightly, rightfully called the great harlot of Babylon, and fed into the anti-Catholicism of atheists, fundamentalist Christians, Satanists, and all other opponents of the church. Jesus said that the gates of hell would not prevail against the church from outside, but said nothing about it being prevailed against from those tearing it down from inside. They are like Trojan horses inside the church, and the occupants of those horses, in quotes, come out when nobody is watching or suspecting and do their work to tear down the church. Many of them were put into the church by the communists and others for that very reason. They are the church's worst enemies, and no antichrist is necessary as long as these people are around, since they can handle the job of tearing down the church all by themselves. No antichrist beyond these people is needed for that job. They are antichrist. God is still more powerful than these people and will overcome them by removing them and putting far better people in their places. There are people who are unreformable and hopeless as long as they stay stuck in their Phariseeism and corruption and depravity, but could be reformed if they would cooperate with divine grace and repent. The Pharisees were hopeless as long as they were stuck in their Phariseeism and couldn't be reformed. Cardinals and even popes should only keep their positions if they maintain the right spirit and keep up the right practice for those positions. But if they lose that spirit and stop doing that practice and can't or won't be brought back to them again, or if they never had that spirit or followed that practice in the first place, they should be removed from their positions and replaced by those meeting the qualifications. Very well said. And John, um, I'm glad you bring in the things from the Bible and the Pharisees. I think that's really important because we see, you know, the, the Bible is the living word and, um, and we are living it and we are seeing things today. What's important here, John, and why we do, why are we doing this? Why are you and I... To be a voice for the righteous, like we've said at the beginning. At the beginning. It's, and yeah. we, we want all voices to be heard. We want our church hierarchy to hear and see what we're, why, we have voices here. We don't like what's going on. Yeah. We don't like um, how our money's being spent. Yes. We're talking yeah. about starving the DSA. You know, in here, um, in this section yeah. that we just read um, uh, from Randy Engel, um, the talk about hush money kind of grabbed my yeah. ears. You know, hush money. So, so we pay, we pay victims 
our our priests, our hierarchy, pay victims, pay them off, yeah. and tell them they have to be quiet and just to walk away. That's a scary business. Do you agree? Yes, I is. And like we said, uh, we shouldn't be paying them for things we don't want. You know, and they're using our money for hush money and everything else they want to do vacations and like it, the rest of the things we said in this book right and i think she's i think she noted on what um lynch had made the comment you know that we didn't spend mission mission money we didn't spend our ministry monies yeah but we spent the monies of um uh things that were bequeathed um that parishioners donated yeah. but i wonder if parishioners do you think parishioners really know that their money's being paid to hush people up to these victims to hush the victims up do you think no, people I know that no i don't think they yeah. do and that's our reason for starving and, and the bequeath money is the same as if money dropped in the basket at church right and and if you're using it for things that they didn't want you to use it for it's a you know a misuse of money you know right so if something was bequeathed to the church yeah do you think the the person that died would probably and their family be happy about no. um paying off victims that never have a voice. No. Yeah, and never really get to be heard. Just to keep silence and, and present a false front to the world so, of the church. So I think you said something real important, that we're here to um, to let voices be heard. And we think there's other voices in the church who, um, who want to speak out on this and maybe what's happening in their parish currently. Yes. You know, like things that we've experienced here at Holy Redeemer um, with... Uh, not being able to pray, uh, we we have talked with this uh, in another podcast with um, with Mike about um, how uh, uh, the abuse of power can happen and you can be just thrown away. Your voice can be thrown away, and that is our whole point of doing this: is to bring these voices out um, and to expose sins yeah, of truth. That's right. Right. Okay, and do you have any other comments, John? No, but did you have any notes to read? I do thought? have some comments here, or some things that I, I just wanted, I had questions about. Um, so, you know, for me, it's it, we get back to good versus evil, uh, and we bring in the sins against truth. Also, we are charged with um, stewardship of God's kingdom and duties, um, and, and looking at the duties of the priest, and then in, in the idea of stewardship. Um, I want to read this uh, from 2 Timothy 1.14. Guard this rich trust with the help of the Holy Spirit that dwells within us. Um, and then also 1 Peter 4.10-11. through 11. This isn't everything in that, but I think these are some important points about being good stewards and, and questioning our priests' and our um, bishops who, um, who use the priesthood for their own gain. If anyone speaks, let it be as if it were the very words of God. If anyone serves, let it be as the strength which God supplies that in all things. God may be glorified through Jesus Christ to whom belong the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Um, I, I question and I challenge the priests and the bishops involved with these um, sexual things and priests who maybe are friends 
of um, priests who have done these things. Um, do you agree, John, about friendships? What happens when, when a priest like is a, a friend with someone? Like Mike said, we make friendship an idol. It's not meant to be more important than God himself. It's a gift from God, but you don't make the gift more important than the giver. You know? So what do we see, like, you know, um, like with priests, you know, uh, protecting um, their buddies with friendship? What happens? Yeah, the truth is sacrificed by the, doing that. The truth is sacrificed by doing that. They put friendship before Jesus Christ. Yes, that's right. Um, another question I had was, um, and, and this is for, for those who are listening, um, we got to be careful who we're looking up to um, as Catholics, as Christians, as people in general. Um, be careful who you're looking up to. Be sure you are looking up to the Father and the Father's will. And also, we have to be ready when we do decide to ask questions that we may suffer. We may suffer losses. We may suffer losses of friends. Yeah. And But if we're sacrificing friendships um, for the good of all, it's something to be said. Yeah. And I think in, in Randy Ingalls' writings here, I think she probably went through a lot of suffering if she was to, to be speaking with us today. I mean, in her writing, she's pointing out some pretty difficult things that, um, and we don't hear a lot about her books. We're just finding the books. Yeah. Would you agree? I would agree yeah. with that, yes. Okay. And I guess I don't have anything else to comment on. Did you want to read some more or we end it here? Um, it's 25 minutes or so, but anyway. I think that's good. First first time, you know. Yep. This is our first time, everyone. Um, John's first po podcast. And we're stumbling through this. Neither one of us are radio specialists or anything like that. And uh, um, we're learning as we go along. But the point is here is that we want the truth to come out um, and you to have a voice and to build up the kingdom of God. Amen. Amen. Do you want to end with a prayer then? Or yes, what? let's end with a prayer. You, you lead okay. it. Come Holy Spirit and descend upon us. And through this work, Lord, um, open the ears of those who are listening. Um, guide us to do what you, you want from this, Lord. And we ask all this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. I'm going to stop. I'm John, and this is a podcast D-O-L-W-2, Episode 2, The Rite of Sodomy. And our first reading is from pages 785 to 788 in Volume 4 of The Rite of Sodomy, Homosexuality and the Roman Catholic Church by Randy Engel. We start with Bishop Anthony O'Connell, Diocese of Palm Beach. Anthony Joseph O'Connell was born in Lachine, County Clare, Ireland on May 10, 1938. He received his early and secondary education at Mount St. Joseph College in Cork and Mungray College in Limerick. At the age of 20, he emigrated to the United States and entered the Kenrick Seminary in St. Louis. 
He was a young man of substantial build and commanding appearance, large and burly, almost six feet tall. His ordination to the priesthood for the Diocese of Jefferson City, Missouri, took place on March 30, 1963. The following fall, he received his first assignment as the director of students at the now defunct St. Thomas Aquinas Minor Seminary in Hannibal, Missouri, operated by the Diocese of Jefferson City. Founded in 1957, St. Thomas was a boarding school for high school-aged boys interested in pursuing a vocation to the priesthood. Attendance at the junior seminary peaked in 1967 with just under 100 students. For many years, it was a major source of candidates to Conception Seminary College, and it supplied more than half of the priests for the Diocese of Jefferson City. Father Dan Mares, an alumnus from St. Thomas and Conception College recalled, St. Thomas was not so much a place to learn how to be a priest, but a place to learn how to be a young Christian man. By early 2000, the enrollment at St. Thomas had dropped significantly. The graduating class of May 2000 numbered only seven. By 2002, the total number of students at the junior seminary had fallen to 27, and it was being almost totally subsidized by parish assessment fees. On May 20, 2002, St. Thomas closed. The final coup de grace came in the form of a sex abuse scandal that had its genesis years before when a charismatic new priest by the name of Father Anthony O'Connell joined the staff of St. Thomas Seminary. From spiritual director to bishop, in 1968, after serving as dean of students for five years, Father O'Connell was named spiritual director of St. Thomas. In 1970, he was appointed rector of St. Thomas, a position he held until June 1988. Such was the confidence that Bishop Michael Francis McAuliffe had in Father O'Connell that he also made the 31-year-old priest director of vocations for the Diocese of Jefferson City, 1969 to 1988. O'Connell also served on the Diocesan Commission for Personal and Personnel and President of the Presbyterial Council. Thus, O'Connell played a vital role in all stages of vocational development for priests of the Diocese of the Jefferson City Diocese. On May 27, 1988, Pope John Paul II appointed O'Connell the first bishop of the Diocese of Knoxville, Tennessee, that was created from the Diocese of Nashville. O'Connell's installation took place three months later at the Holiday Inn Convention Center. Archbishop Pio Laghi, the apostolic pronuncio, was the principal consecrator, assisted by bishops James Niedergesses of Nashville and Michael McAuliffe of Jefferson City. One has to wonder what thoughts were going through McCullough's mind as he watched a man who he knew to be a sexual predator of young boys studying for the priesthood being elevated to the rank of bishop. 
came years later, in November 1998, Bishop Anthony O'Connell was informed by Archbishop Agostino Cacciavillan, the Apostolic Pronuncio in Washington, D.C., that he was to relieve Bishop Robert Lynch, the Apostolic Administrator of Palm Beach, who had taken over the diocese when Bishop Simmons resigned in June. O'Connell's installation as Bishop of Palm Beach took place on January 14, 1999. Catholics of Palm Beach breathed a little easier, having been assured by the new bishop that he would bring a higher moral order to the scandal-ridden diocese. The illusion lasted three years, two months, and seven days. A misguided, in quotation mark, bishop confesses, almost. The month of March 2002 started off in relative quiet. In the first week of March, Michael McCarran, executive director of the Florida Catholic Conference, distributed a pro forma four-paragraph statement signed by all ten Florida bishops, including O'Connell, on clerical sexual abuse. The bishops called such acts, especially those involving minors, in quotation marks, both criminal and sinful, and assured their 2.2 million followers that procedures are in place to deal with allegations of clerical sexual misconduct. That, that very same week, the O'Connell scandal began to unfold. Christopher Dixon, a former priest and victim of Bishop Anthony O'Connell, decided to break a confidential agreement he made in 1996 as part of a secret settlement with the Diocese of Palm Beach and Jefferson City. Dixon initially gave his story to the St. Louis Post-Dispatch that ran the story on March 8, 2002. He was also interviewed later by reporters for the Associated Press and the New York Times. Dixon expressed puzzlement as to why O'Connell, with skeletons in his own closet, accepted the Palm Beach position in the first place. Bishop O'Connell had gambled on money keeping everyone quiet and had sadly underestimated the newfound courage of victims of clerical sexual abuse. On March 8, 2002, the popular bishop, with the Irish lilting voice, appeared at a news conference flanked by two dozen priests and staff. He announced his resignation and confessed that he had molested a teenager Dixon at St. Thomas Aquinas Seminary 25 years ago, but he only touched him in quotation marks. With cameras rolling, the dour-faced O'Connell explained that he engaged in some in quotation marks misguided and in quotation marks experimental forms of sexual therapy to help the young man cope with problems of adolescent sexuality. It was quotation marks so stupid and foolish the counseling had gone too far, end of quotation, he said. I am mortified, the 63-year-old O'Connell told reporters, and I am saddened and embarrassed and ashamed. In a form of self-praise, O'Connell said that God had given him, in quotations, a lot of abilities and great gifts, and that he, and he had used those gifts, quotation marks, very fully. 
He apologized to the papal nuncio, fellow priests, and his Jewish, Muslim, and Protestant friends. When asked if there might be similar accusations from other persons, O'Connell said one might surface quotation marks of a somewhat similar situation in a somewhat similar time frame, end of quotation. Meanwhile, behind the scenes, O'Connell was engaged in a frantic game of damage control. He emailed other victims and tried to buy their silence with money. He asked them not to file a lawsuit against him. Damage control from the pulpit. Immediately after the press conference, pastors of Catholic churches throughout the Diocese of Palm Beach and Knoxville announced that they were holding special masses for O'Connell. Diocesan spin doctors, Deacon Sam Barbaro in Palm Beach and Mark Saucier in Jefferson City informed the press and Catholic laity via the diocesan newspaper that the bishop was resting in an undisclosed location. A memorandum from the diocese read that Sunday from all pulpits in the Diocese of Palm Beach stated, quotation marks, no allegations of sexual misconduct were made against Bishop O'Connell during his time as your bishop, and quotation. All priests were instructed to stress the need for prayers and forgiveness in their homilies. Our one priest, Reverend Marty Devereaux of St. Joan of Arc, confessed, quotations, we are all broken and imperfect. Bishop O'Connell faced his imperfection and didn't do it anymore, end quotation. Monsignor John McMahon, pastor of St. Joan of Arc, said, in quotations, Rome didn't know about it. Jefferson, Missouri, didn't tell anyone. They tried for rehabilitation. That was a bad move. End quotation. What rehabilitation? O'Connell never spent a day in a rehabilitation medical treatment center in Missouri or anywhere else. More to the point, with at least eight bodies and souls strewn along his path, he never spent a day in jail. Bishop O'Connell had been popular among liberal priests in the diocese. Some 100 of his loyal followers put together a full-page ad supporting their bishop, intended for publication in the Palm Beach Post, but it was pulled by diocesan officials at the last moment. The ad was in the form of a petition asking O'Connell to remain as their leader, although the decision to accept or reject a bishop's resignation rested in the hands of the Holy Father. Similar sentiments and acts of support came out of O'Connell's former diocese, diocese of Knoxville. In quotations, it's a tragedy that such a highly respected bishop, known for championing many social causes and reaching out to so many people, would be beset by such a deep personal human failing. End of quotation, said Rick Mosaccio, Mosaccio, communications director for the Diocese of Nashville. In quotations, we pray for the healing of all involved, end quotation, he said. People who knew Bishop O'Connell as the ordinary of Knoxville and that they were taken by surprise by the revelations of sex abuse. In quotations, it is totally contrary 
to what I know of Bishop O'Connell, said Father J. Van Johnston, a canon lawyer and chancellor of the Diocese of Knoxville. He is a fine, in quotations, he is a fine, laudable, charismatic, high-spirited man. I am saddened by these events, in quotations, said Reverend Bill Couch, a Lutheran pastor who worked with O'Connell in the Association of Christian Denominational Leaders in Knoxville. I, in quotations, I support him, but each of us are responsible for our actions before God, said Couch. In quotations, in quotations, I'm sure that his repentance is genuine, in quotations. These are my comments on what I just read. The reading from the right of sodomy, homosexuality in the Roman Catholic Church by Randy Engel pages 785 to 78 volume in volume 4 that I just read is more confirmation of many priests practice of excusing and covering up their sexual and other sins. That practice as I said in episode 1 of DOLW2 is fuel for the fire of anti-Catholic prejudice and propaganda which as does all prejudice broad brushes all members of a group with the same brush and judges them all by the actions and behavior of the worst few of them. Despite knowing that, that their actions and cover-ups will defame their church, these priests only care about what they want to do in themselves and commit those actions anyway and say de facto to hell with the church. They are the Antichrist in the church and the hidden occupants of the Trojan horse in the church tearing it down from the inside. Christ says of them, as he said of the Pharisees in his time, you are of your father the devil, and the lusts of your father you will do. And your cross, you cross land and sea to make one disciple. And when you have made him, you make him twice the son of hell as yourselves. Christ also said, let your yes be yes, and your no be no, for whatsoever is more than these than this is from the evil one, which, if it were followed, would eliminate all of the excuses, these excuses and cover-ups of the priests, sexual and other sins, as well as the subtleties, pretentiousness, superficiality, snobbishness, holier-than-thou-ism, and self-deceit and other deceit in the rest of the church. Furthermore, Christ said, be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. If priests and Catholics generally would do that and follow Jesus' other teachings exactly instead of doing what they actually do, 90% or more of all cynicism against the church would disappear and only the remaining in stubborn resistance to truth and change continue among people, no matter how well Christians might live the faith. And now, now we're going to read a section from the Catechism of the Roman Catholic Church as, uh, what is it? 2284, Respect for the Dignity of Persons respect for the souls of others scandal. Scandal is an attitude or behavior which leads another to do evil. The person who gives scandal becomes his neighbor 
his neighbor's tempter. He damages virtue and integrity, and he may even draw his brother into spiritual death. Scandal is a grave offense if by deed or omission another is deliberately led into a grave offense. 2285, scandal takes on a particular gravity by reason of the authority of those who cause it or the weakness of those who are scandalized. It prompted our Lord to utter this curse, whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. Scandal is grave when given to those who by nature or office are obliged to teach and educate others. Jesus reproaches the scribes and Pharisees on this account. He likens them to wolves in sheep's clothing. 2286, scandal can be provoked by laws or institutions, by fashion or opinion. Therefore, they are guilty of scandal who establish laws or social structures leading to the decline of morals and the corruption of religious practice or to, in quotation marks, social conditions that intentionally or not make Christian conduct and obedience to the commandments difficult and practically impossible, end of quotation. This is also true of business leaders who make rules encouraging fraud, teachers who provoke their children to anger, or manipulators of public opinion who turn it away from moral values. 2287, anyone who uses the power at his disposal in such a way that it leads others to do wrong becomes guilty of scandal and responsible for the temptation responsible for the evil that he has directly or indirectly encouraged. Temptations, quotations, marks, temptations to sin are sure to come, but woe to him by whom they come, end of quotation. Well, this is all that I have for right now. I don't have any more reading, so I'll end it here. Uh, may God bless this podcast, and may the Holy Spirit use it to touch people's hearts. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.